We know that you're the diva of this podcast. Absolutely, so. yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm the you're the Zaza Gabor of this podcast. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm the Imelda Marcos of the podcast. It's Friday, July the 2nd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Quarantine Survivor, and I'm joined as ever by Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Belgian Fighter Pilot. Uh, I'm, Paul, explain this to me. Uh, I, have no, I have no idea why you are flying around in Belgian jets, but I'm sure it's a fascinating story. You uh, you missed a story. I, I did miss a story, <laughs> yes. Ah, okay. I was doing something else. Uh, yesterday, a Belgian F-16 fighter jet crashed at Leeuwarden Air Force Base oh. in the Netherlands. Um, it was actually the last day they would be stationed there uh, in Leeuwarden. They were uh, uh, preparing the F- F-16 for takeoff. And all mm-hmm. of a sudden, uh, before, they, uh, b- before they finished that, it started to uh, move automatically out of itself. It's it sped up mm-hmm. and it crashed into uh, into one of the side buildings at the air force base. The the, the Belgian pilot managed to uh, escape. He he used his uh, his uh, ejection seat, um, but yeah, it was a serious crash at wow. uh, at Leeuwarden. Um, but yeah, naturally, it was a Belgian fighter jet, of so it would, of course. <laughs> um, so, uh, but luckily, uh, uh, yeah, there were two uh, people injured, I believe, but uh, uh, not too serious. Good. Um, but yeah, really uh, a dramatic scene at Leeuwarden uh, Air Force Base. Absolutely. Um, and, and the Dutch F-16s already um, stopped their service in, uh, in, in, in Leeuwarden. They sort of did a goodbye tour that they flew the Elfstedentocht. Uh, last All right. week, okay. Um, so that was a nice gesture yeah. to uh, to the people of yeah. of Leeuwarden, of Friesland, I have to say. Um, but now um, the Leeuwarden Air Force Base will be fully equipped with the new F-35s, and right. that brings us, uh, that reminds us, of course, of of your favorite Ophef uh, of a couple of, of course, years ago yes, when yes, the, the F-35s arrived in Leeuwarden. <laughs> what happened then? Yes, and uh, they got uh, sprayed with foam. They're not. Uh, yeah. Uh, instead of water. Yeah. Yeah. They were welcomed by the uh, the local fire trucks, but the fire trucks managed for somehow managed to switch the, fo- the the water for foam, and it uh, caused massive damage to the to, yeah. to the casing of the um, uh, of of the fighter jets. Yeah, this yeah. multi-billion, uh, multi-million dollar of uh, fighter jets couldn't handle a little bit of foam. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was a great culmination of years yeah. of Ophef. It so. was, yeah, it was, it was the last chapter in a whole, a whole book, a whole encyclopedia of Ophef around the yeah. J thirty-five. So, yeah, it was very satisfying. Yeah, and um, so we had um, uh, initially Geert Wilders was the uh, was the ophef generator of this podcast. Then it was uh, Thierry Baudet who succeeded that mm-hmm. title, and now we have Leeuwarden Air Force Base yeah. who uh, uh, who causes the most ophef. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's a great successor of uh, of Wilders and Baudet, I think. It is. It's it, it's it's honouring the tradition very well, and um, yeah, I, I guess I mean the the, the Dutch F sixteens uh, did did their kind of farewell flight passed around the Ostade Tocht, but uh, yeah, I, I suppose the Belgian F-16, that was kind of a farewell as well, but of a different uh, different order. A different <laughs> order indeed, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, Gordon, you uh, came back from the United 
Kingdom last week. Yes. Uh, how long did you have to stay in quarantine? Uh, I returned from Plague Island, as you say, uh, last week. Um, <laughs> I had <laughs> I managed to avoid uh, contracting anything nasty, um, so that was uh, a bonus. Uh, I had spent uh, five days in quarantine altogether, and um, yeah, my experience in quarantine was basically that. Uh, um, yeah, I, I came back on Thursday. I had to be in quarantine till Tuesday. I managed to, uh, yeah, it was pretty stress-free. I managed to stock up before, well beforehand, and uh, my children uh, went went out to the supermarket, so they actually uh, yeah, had to do a bit of <laughs> bit of the household chores. Uh, a little bit of slave labor, a bit of free slave labor thrown in. So, yeah. so luckily, you didn't live in Amsterdam, so. Exactly. Well, yes. Well, yeah. But if I lived in Rotterdam, I could have just gone out myself and probably gone out dancing um, yeah. with all the people who've had the Janssen vaccine. They would never have noticed uh, <laughs> b- b- because they're, because they're not really checking. I had my, I had one phone call, uh, which was on Friday morning, uh, basically, and they just sort of checked my quarantine address and said, are you staying there? And I said, yes. And that was it. So... <laughs> Uh, so there's exactly no the most... way of actually checking if you actually stayed indoors or not. No, not the most stringent checks, I have to say. I mean, uh, it, it, it seems to be that uh, basically the, 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 they have um, they, they select a number of people who are quarantining um, at random. They, they just pick a sample, they phone you up, oh. and um, it's only if they really hear something going. If they hear, you know, clinking glasses or a train <laughs> announcement or, 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 the, or the sound of a dying Belgian F-16 fighter jet in the background <laughs> that they actually or the sounds these, of yeah. or, or the sound of bit. Uh, 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 crunching in exactly. your mouth, then, yeah. uh, then then they will take serious action. Yeah, if so. they hear that, then they'll send the inspectors around to your, your house to check if you're actually quarantining. But I guess unless you actually live right next door to the um, where the, to the inspector's office, then you've got time to get home before they before they nab you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm surprised that they uh, 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 that they make some calls, but uh, they they selected you at random, so they don't call everyone who needs to be in quarantine. No, only they, they, cert- okay. They don't have the resources to call absolutely everybody. Yeah, I've got to say, no. when I was in the UK, I got a phone call every day. Um, but again, from it was Boris really, Johnson or not, someone else. Thank God, not personally from Boris Johnson. Hmm. No, again from a call center. But all they uh, did then was really just sort of read out a script of what I was supposed to be doing. They didn't actually ask me if I was quarantining or not. But again, I suppose if they'd heard I was in the pub, if, if they heard like the noise of a television broadcasting a football match in the yeah. background, they'd have uh, and lots of cheering, they'd have taken action. Yeah, speaking of uh, the European Football Championships, yeah. uh, let's go to the Ophef of the week. Indeed. On Tuesday, England played against Germany in the second round of the European Championships, and as always, the country's anthems were played before the start of the match. Observant viewers of the Dutch broadcast of the game noticed, however, that there was something off with the live subtitles when the German anthem was played. The text didn't match the anthem's lyrics. Uh, das Lied der Deutschen has been Germany's anthem since 1922, that includes the Nazi period, but after the Second World War it was decided to keep it as the national anthem, but the first stanza with lines such as Deutschland über alles, über alles in der Welt, was dropped. Uh, but it was exactly this part of the song that could be read in the NOS's subtitles and not the correct third stanza. A tweet with a photo of a TV screen with the wrong lyrics went viral on Twitter on Tuesday evening and was also picked up by German media. (laughs) The NPO, the uh, Dutch public broadcaster, apologized for the mistake. And in a tweet, the NPO said that it was an error by a staff member um, of the subtitle service and they offered an apology to anyone who was offended. Uh, Ah, right. 
awkward mistake by um, by uh, the Dutch broadcaster, but yeah. uh, uh, this happens more often, uh, if I uh, understood correctly. Uh, uh, whenever there is, uh, whenever the German anthem is played, someone just Google's it and uh, yeah. ends up on the Wikipedia page. And indeed, the first stanza is you know still the it's it's still there and people just assume that that's the one that's being sung and um uh, uh, uh yeah they don't check it yeah. with uh, with the actual uh words that are that are sung they don't check it with the germans which would be the obvious uh, thing to yeah. do yeah it's just uh, yeah, yeah. yeah which is a classic dutch area did, did did the guy npo say he was only obeying orders uh, as it means defense <laughs> <laughs> that should have been his reaction, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, the, um, befail is befail. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No. Very awkward indeed. And it, it's kind of funny. To, to, uh, I, I think a lot of people still think that Deutschland über alles is the um, is still sung, even though it's take, been taken out decades ago. It seems to be. Uh, the, 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 do you know what the actual first line of the German anthem is? Uh, the, the, in, of the first of the well, first dance of the third. It, it, they use the third verse now. Yeah. The, 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 uh, no, I don't know. Yeah, so, Einigkeit und Recht und Freiheit. So unity and uh, yeah, yeah, un- yeah, unity and rights and freedom. Yeah, so a which, m- much, uh, much more wholesome much more sentiment. Sounds much more appropriate. Yeah, the, but the actual no, I was, uh, yeah, I, I actually went and looked this up um, in a moment of boredom. <laughs> the lyrics were originally written in 1841 by August Heinrich Hoffmann von Fallersleben. Probably Which is the most German name ever. <laughs> German name ever imagine, imaginable. Yeah, but he wrote it in 1841, obviously, that, and uh, Deutschland, Deutschland über alles was really a plea for German unity or German unification, yeah. because back in those days, Germany wasn't a country. It was still a patchwork quilt of statelets and principalities. So the yeah. sentiment Deutschland über alles was very much to say, you know, you want to put Germany, it was kind of Germany first rather than Prussia or the Palatinate. So yeah. that, was where that, that was where that came from. But obviously it got given a different connotation by the Nazis. So after this war, they decided not to use it anymore because it was sounded too much like German imperialism or triumphalism. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, but the, yeah. The, but, but the, yeah, the two, when you read it that way, you realize that the two verses actually go together because it's all about we want to bring all Germans together in a spirit of brotherhood and unity and, you know, sort of a, it, it's a German version of a liberté, égalité, fraternité, basically. In a way, it is, yeah. yeah. And I, I was, I was, sad, I, I, I looked uh, the, 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 the anthem uh, up as well, and I was mm-hmm. just sad that they dropped the, the second stanza, mm-hmm. uh, where they sing about uh, German wine and German women. So yeah, <laughs> yes. I, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That would have gone down very well with your own Dijsselbloem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Um, uh, th- this is a nice. Uh, this is a nice connection with uh, with my job title because yeah. uh, the uh, Dutch safety boards announced that they will launch an investigation in what happened at Leeuwarden Air Force Base. Yeah. And who is the chair of the Dutch safety board? It's not August Heinrich uh, von Fallersleben, <laughs> is it? <laughs> no, it is Jeroen Dijsselbloem. It's Jeroen so, yeah, Dijsselbloem. Uh, oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. a nice, uh, nice little link. Okay. Um, yeah. so, so, so will you be blaming the will you be blaming the Portuguese for uh, sort of spending too <laughs> so spending too much time on uh, on, on wine and women and not uh, uh, yeah, n- 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 not observing the air, air traffic control screens? I, I I'm sure he will. I'm sure he will. So yes, uh, so Deutsche Nuba Alice is not the first uh, uh, verse of the German national anthem anymore. And uh, so, yeah, uh, but yeah. NPO didn't Lesson realize. learned. Lesson learned. This week, we've got some news of some fishy goings on at the Agriculture Ministry, some dirty bookkeeping by farmers, more Corona app mishaps, and the Czechs bounce the Netherlands out of Euro 2020. And so much more. And so much more, yeah. 
We start with an item about uh, which is labelled fish and shit, Paul. So uh, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, you really like... You, you typed this yourself, Corinne. <laughs> so, uh, yes. yeah, good job uh, uh, congratulating yourself on this, uh, on, this, uh, on this title. Yeah, yeah. civil servants at the Dutch Agriculture and Fisheries Ministries misled the European Commission, according to the NOS. The ministry juggled the figures in order to obtain as many EU permits as possible for the controversial pulse fishing method, documents requested under the Freedom of Information Act have shown. Pulse fishing involves sending a current of electricity through sections of the seabed, partially stunning fish such as sole and plaice, and forcing some into the net. It was promoted by the Dutch as an environmentally friendly way of fishing because, unlike older methods, it doesn't involve dragging heavy nets and chains over the seabed. It, also, uh, it is also a more efficient way of catching fish and requires less time at sea, thus reducing CO2 emissions. Mm. The NOS claims the documents show email exchanges between civil servants in which they acknowledged the methods for obtaining the permits were illegal and dubious, but that the European Commission and also the minister were to be kept in the dark about them. The efforts to mislead officials resulted in 84 permits, covering a quarter of the Dutch fishing fleet instead of 5% the Commission was originally willing to give. Civil servants were under heavy pressure from MPs and the fishing industry, which has to be supported in every way possible. NOS quoted one of the documents as saying, uh, but some three years later in 2019, pulse fishing was banned in Europe. France in particular protested against the method supported by environmental organizations who claimed it was cruel and unnecessary method of fishing and is depleting fish stocks. Despite Dutch protests, the ban was upheld in April of this year and became effective as of July 1st. The ministry has released only part of the documents relating to the Dutch lobby for pulse fishing because they contain information which could lead to European sanctions, according to the NOS. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, in, in, uh, uh, yeah, the, the problem here is that, you know, uh, pulse fishing, when it was invented, it was already uh, banned by on the EU law. Yeah. Uh, but the, the Dutch managed to... Uh, convinced the European Commission that it was necessary to do uh, scientific research about the new method yeah. uh, to 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 actually check if it was harmful and if it uh, and, and to check if it was actually uh, environmentally f more friendly than the older methods. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was why initially a, a, a couple of ships uh, of the Dutch fleet were given the exemption yeah. um, to use pulse fishing, but um, 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 it turned out that they were so successful that the others uh, the others uh, fishers were became yeah, jealous at their yeah. economic success and they pressured the Dutch government uh, to, to, to get more and more of these exemptions, which the D Dutch government managed to get from, from the EU, mm. but under the uh, pretext yeah. of doing scientific research. And the problem is that they never done, I mean, it, it took five years before the first uh, scientist uh, 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 became on board of one of these pulse fishing ships. Yeah. Um, and it was never properly done. And now uh, France has protested against the method and said that it was illegal after all. And now it's yeah. permanently banned. And the Dutch doesn't even have, you know, the scientific proof or um, uh, results to uh, to to disprove the um, uh, the the the, the French's uh, allegations. So, yeah. So they um, yeah. they, they had to. It, it all sounds very much like an underwater version of the field labs method, right? It's just bad science. And yeah. it, they, 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 they they basically just uh, uh, go ahead and carry it out under the pretense you say that they're doing a scientific experiment when they're clearly not they're just they're just doing it anyway on a large scale on a much larger yeah. scale than you can really say is uh, 
that you can call a scientific sample. So, and also, yeah, there is the argument uh, about that it's a cruel practice, that's cruel to the fish. I don't yeah, know. But enough we don't about know if that's actually the case. Because well, let's, no... let's interview the fish. Uh, this, uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, sure there, I'm sure there are people who are experts in animal husbandry who can tell you whether the, uh, the fish are, you know, traumatized by uh, the act of pulse fishing. But also, just this whole thing about they say it's an environmentally friendly method because they use fewer CO2 emissions. But the big issue, the big environmental issue with fishing is overfishing and running down the stocks. And the fact that yeah. this is a much more efficient method is in fact the environmental flaw because they catch far too many fish and that yep. means the fish then they've been spending the last 30 years trying to um, recover the fish stocks from the last round of overfishing which was basically trawler fishing where they use these trawler nets so yep. it, it, it's a complete you know the, the whole argument is a whole red herring uh, to, um, to to introduce <laughs> a gratuitous pun because yeah, yeah because basically you know the, 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 it's a very unenvironmental method uh, in the, the in the narrow context of using fewer emissions uh, and spending less time at sea it's more environmentally friendly but of course you know the fish are part of the environment as well and if you just if you if you catch and kill all the fish then yeah you're damaging the environment far more than you're saving it that's true, but uh, um, uh, the pulse fishers say that they um, uh, the new method doesn't disturb the seabed as much as the older methods does. Um, so that in that way, they claim it is uh, more environmentally friendly. And um, with regard to the CO2 emissions, they say that they are the only um, economic branch that are currently uh, 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 reaching the Paris Agreement goals um, uh, uh, because of pulse fishing. And, and now they are... So, uh, or at least that was what the the, the pulse fishing lobby was saying yeah, of course yeah, we always indeed. have to yes. uh, take a little pin uh, 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 how do you say that we have to take it with a pinch of salt yeah, you have to serve your herring with a pinch of salt yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 a lot of salt in this case um, and aside yeah. to, but back on dry land um, some shit's gone missing what's that about <laughs> Yeah, an analysis of over 300 criminal inquiries into fraud involving the disposal of manure has shown that farmers are largely getting away with the practice, a report by Strategische Milieukamer seen by NRC shows. Dutch livestock farming produces some 75 billion kilos of manure a year, not all of which can be spread out on land because of the large uh, amounts of phosphates and nitrogen it contains. To prevent contamination of the land and groundwater, part of the manure has to be stored or destroyed by the farmers, which can cost tens of thousands of euros. Farmers who bend the rules to save money stand very little chance of being prosecuted, the report says. Uh, the number of farmers who have actually been sentenced is unclear. The report describes how some farmers spread the manure on the land and falsify papers to show they have destroyed it, or how they manipulate the emission systems. The report, which is based on 15 years of legal cases, said a total of 185 million kilos of manure went missing in 21 of the cases under consideration um how would you lose 185 it's quite a feat but they've managed it they managed it anyway yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a lot of shit to cover yeah it's, it's, um, it's like ghost shit uh, yeah, uh, this uh, practice allowed the farmers to save tens of millions of euros, uh, according to the researchers' uh, calculations. Uh, and the report concludes that cooperation with the sector is insufficient and that there is a lack of controls. And they wrote that of the uh, 950,000 manure transports in 2019, only 821 were checked. So yeah, that's uh, just a very little amount yeah. of uh, of checks. So, yeah, um, um, yeah it, it sounds like uh, those... Uh, check inspections are being run by the same people who, uh, who who supervise the quarantine 
from yeah. people who come back from high risk corona countries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so a big lot of so a big load of uh, phantom shit has been dumped at the door of um, exactly the, yeah. the agriculture ministry. <laughs> See, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, you never see that mentioned at the uh, at the farmers' protests when they no 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 no. Yeah. I'm just happy they don't dump these. Uh, what is it? 175 yeah, yes. million kilos of yeah. shit on the Mali in, in the front of the Binnenhof, even. Yeah. yeah. That would be terrible. Disastrous. All children over 12 will be able to book a coronavirus vaccine starting from Friday after the Health Council gave its blessing to the idea. Health Minister Hugo de Jonge said children aged 12 to 16 should consult their parents first, while 17-year-olds could make up their own minds. But ultimately, teenagers had the right to request the jab even if their parents were against it, de Jonge said. The Gesundheitsrat said vaccinating teenagers would protect them against long COVID and help prevent a resurgence of the virus, while de Jonge said it would reduce the chance of schools having to close because of outbreaks in the autumn. Uh, and on the subject of uh, resurgence, how are the numbers doing? Uh, well, hospital numbers are still going down uh, quite strongly. We've now got fewer than 300 COVID patients in the hospital uh, for the first time since September and just over 100 in intensive care. But... The infection numbers uh, look to be leveling off, and that's got everything to do with the Delta variant. We've had around mm. 600 cases a day for the last week, which is uh, pretty good. Start of June, we were still had about 3,000. But on Thursday, it jumped up to 825, and the RVM has said this week that they estimate the Delta variant could already be responsible for half of all cases, which is up from just under 10% uh, two weeks ago. Yeah, but the health uh, ministry is saying that we can all start dancing with Janssen. Yeah, dancing with Janssen. Yes, if you had yeah. your Janssen vaccine, you can just go straight from the vaccine center to the uh, to, to the nightclub. Apparently, according to Hugo yeah. de Jonge, even though the experts say it'll take you two weeks to build up immunity. So, but oh, only two weeks. Oh, I thought it, it took much longer. Okay, uh, no, yeah. it takes when... two weeks to. I think you get full immunity. Well, maximum immunity. You never get hundred yeah. percent, but you get maximum immunity after about three weeks. I think, but two yeah. weeks is, is good enough. Um, but yeah, it's, the, night, the nightclubs have all reopened their doors and there were some pretty alarming scenes at the weekend uh, because the test for entry system just uh, completely collapsed uh, yeah. because it was tested to destruction basically by enthusiastic partygoers, people who haven't been out um, from yeah, haven't had a night on the town for you know ten months, so understandably they're all they, they, they all want to go out at the same time. Um, you're supposed to take a test a day or so before you go out under the test for entry, and then present your negative result on the door. But they were overwhelmed with inquiries um, yeah. uh, last week, uh, so the system froze. They also said that they claim they've been hacked. Um, I don't really know if, if that was ever substantiated, but that was what the test for Tuchang said. Um, mm. And in any case, whatever happened, a lot of people didn't get their results um, by the time they, they headed out the door, which meant long queues of frustrated young punters outside nightclubs and all kinds of kind of, uh, yeah, slightly dubious methods for resolving the situation. Uh, because what they didn't want, obviously, was a whole load of drunken people being told you can't go out and uh, then yeah. Rec- yeah, uh, uh, running riot in the streets. So some venues made people take rapid antigen tests before they went in, uh, but others uh, were just, um, in other cases, people were just handed a negative test result uh, as yeah. compensation even though they didn't have the actual results they didn't know if they were positive or not um, and other people claim they've been able to bypass the system by just screenshotting uh, QR yeah. codes and sharing them with their friends so yeah. a big mess basically and quite concerning and there were news there's news I think on Thursday I saw that um, a, a nightclub in uh, Twente in Enschede had uh, been identified as a, uh, as, as a source for a mini outbreak so 
Yeah, I heard a story that a, uh, a, a, a friend group of 18 people, of which 10 or so, had tested positive after their night out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty alarming because, you know, if they have been uh, uh, infected, then, you know, it's a... It, it's, a, it's a busy nightclub and then that uh, obviously means that a lot of other people are infected as well so that's also very worrying yeah. I have to say that when I got my Janssen vaccine on Saturday I didn't go straight to the nightclub I yeah. went straight to McDonald's for an ice cream <laughs> because it was very hot and I okay. uh, noticed that there was a McDonald's next door to of my vaccine location in Rijswijk which I believe you also visited with I your also son, went to the, uh, to, to, to the Broodfabriek in uh, Rijswijk yes yeah, yeah I went I've got to say I, 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 I should say, uh, because we're uh, often critical of uh, the way this uh, vaccine program has been run, and rightly, that um, yeah, I had a very pleasant surprise last week because uh, my, my uh, one of my children, my youngest son, who's 15, um, uh, was uh, already on the vaccine priority list. So um, I got the invitation through the door on Tuesday um, morning. So when he came back from school, uh, we I rang up to book the appointment at five o'clock. And they asked, uh, are you going on holiday this summer? I said, yes, we're going on holiday in early August. And I said, okay, well, if you want to get both uh, vaccines before you go away, then um, you can come tonight. So an hour oh. later, an hour after phoning them up, uh, he was uh, he was in the vaccine centre in Reisweg getting his jab. And he also gave me an excuse to miss the, the, the first half of the England Germany game. So, we were so, all you, so you missed the wrong, you missed a Nazi anthem. Uh. <laughs> I missed the whole, yeah, I'll pay for that, the Nazi anthem, which, uh, sadly. Yeah, yeah. I was also presently surprised with the level of organization over there. It's, uh, it reminded me a little bit of the Efteling with all these, you know, waiting queues that uh, snaked around. And uh, but, but I didn't have to wait at all i i think i was uh i was in for three minutes when i got my my jab and then uh, you have to wait for uh, what was it 15 minutes or half yes, an hour after your jab you're 15 minutes yeah 15 minutes yeah. okay then i did it correctly mm. um and uh yeah i i was gone i think in 18 minutes so yeah it was uh, it, it all went very very fast yeah no, so yeah, so pretty. Serious. Now they finally got it sorted out, and there've been some gigantic teething troubles. Uh, it is running pretty pretty well, I think. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, 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 but the whole business with the um, yeah with the test for entry is obviously a big worry uh, that uh, yeah. people are they're not checking properly if people are infected. Uh, Justice Minister Fred Krapperhauser said he won't tolerate a repeat, and mayors have got the power to shut down venues that uh, don't enforce the rules properly so we'll see what happens this weekend and there were also teething problems with the travel travel app wasn't there yes the corona check app uh, was supposed to go live on wednesday this is the one that's linked to the european union's gateway uh, and that means that you can travel around the eu unrestricted if you can show proof of vaccination or a recent negative test or if you've had corona and recovered so if you had a positive test in the last six months but not in the last two weeks um, then that's also um, deemed to be uh, evidence you got, you're protected enough to travel safely. But there have been problems because people who installed the app on Thursday were unable to find their vaccination records. And there are also issues with people trying to find proof of an old positive test. And also around 600,000 vaccines that have been given by family doctors, that's mostly people in their early 60s who get AstraZeneca, still haven't been recorded in the system. So again, you've got hmm. this problem with a fragmented system that's not joined up properly and uh, records going missing. Uh, the health ministry said most of these problems have been fixed in a new update, but there are still gaps in the data. So, for example, if you had your PCR tested at the GGD test centre, that'll be recorded. But if you were tested in hospital, then your result may not have been logged. 
Um, huh. Also, around 150,000 people haven't given permission for their test results to be shared with the AOVM. It might be at the time they had their jab, they didn't realize that that was necessary uh, to, yeah. you know, to, 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 for the purposes of the, uh, the, of the travel app. And one last issue with travel is uh, quarantining. Uh, as we mentioned before, uh, the Telegraph reported this week that only 23 fines have been issued for breaking the mandatory quarantine for people travelling from high-risk con- countries. Uh, Amsterdam sent inspectors out to quarantine addresses 58 times in the whole month of June, and in Rotterdam it was just 11. Hmm. So yeah, that can be right. Yeah. So they're not really being th- being very thorough. Yeah, yeah. I have to say that I also didn't experience any problems with the Corona app. I got my jab uh, when when was it on Saturday? And yeah. Saturday evening, uh, I thought, well, let's uh, let's download the uh, the uh, Corona test app or, or what's this, what is it called? Um, the yeah, Corona, the Corona check, check app. app. Yeah, yeah. And I logged in and I immediately got my result and yeah. uh, the international QR code took a little bit longer but I, I just checked it and it's there so uh, yeah I, ca- I am uh, I'm free to travel to uh, good the rest of the excellent so, so yeah so, so, so watch out Europe yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah there are also problems with it because there's another website um, for uh, where, where you can uh, sign up for a jab to uh, you know for, for testing for travel uh, which tested for guys in Pintanel I think which that wasn't working when they when they launched it either so people had to phone up to get appointments so and then they found yeah. the phone lines were jammed because everyone wanted to get a test for travel but one thing possibly a handy tip if you're going away if you're traveling within the European Union and you can use the Corona Check app now because it's all working the Corona Check app will check um, will include any PCR tests you've had at the GGD test center so you don't necessarily need to go to the special test for travel um, you know, channel you can just have a regular PCR test at the GGD and that will be logged in your Corona check. So as long as you're traveling within Europe, um, then that should be that. Should, and of course, those, those tests are free. Well, I think the test for travel yeah. ones are free as well now for July and August. But that might be actually a better a uh, better method to to, to better, just, better just phone up your yeah. phone up your, your regular KKD. Great tip here on the Dutch News podcast. Yeah. Information news now. Uh, there isn't any. Right. So fasten your seatbelts and let's move to uh, Deze 60 leader and foreign affairs minister Sigrid Kaag. Did you see what I did there? I see what you did there, yes, Paul. Good. Very good. Very good. Uh, Documents revealed under the Freedom of Information Act by Shockblog Geen Stel reveals that members of the D66 campaign team and public officials of the Foreign Office were given far-reaching influence in the editing of a documentary about Foreign Trade Minister Sigrid Kaag, which was broadcasted two months before the 2021 general election. The documentary makers started to follow Kaag when she was still a UN diplomat in the Middle East, and filming continued when she became minister in 2017 and after she was elected leader of Deze 66 in 2020. The documentary was broadcasted by public broadcaster VPRO in January 2021, which led to criticism at the time. Many felt it wasn't the task of a public broadcaster to air a documentary about a politician standing for election only a few weeks before the general election, but VPRO said at the time that the documentary was made independently by critical journalists and the party had no influence in what was shown in it. But the disclosed emails between the filmmakers and party and ministerial officials now revealed this to be untrue. Yeah, and not only the FPRO said that, but also uh, uh, the media minister, Ari Slob, said it yeah. um, as well. He said it in Parliament or he wrote it in a letter to Parliament uh, that there'd been no undue influence um, on the filmmakers from Deza Zestig. And I think he didn't know any better, in fairness to him. No, he was just, he just said what he was told by the, by the broadcaster, of course, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But that obviously put him on the spot. And yes, and what was discussed in the emails? 
The uh, 275 disclosed pages uh, give a fascinating insight in the world of spin doctors and political PR. Uh, the film was shown to uh, party officials such as the Desa campaign leader uh, Sjoerd Sjoerdsma, who is also an MP, and officially to correct factual errors uh, if, if they uh, happen to be in the documentary. But mm. they uh, responded by sending a long list of possible improvements uh, to the documentary makers, many of which were granted. Uh, one of the requests was to remove a scene where glasses of champagne were poured uh, during an official visit of Kaag in Niger. Uh, this scene is indeed removed from the final edit. Another removed scenes at the request of Deze Sester include one where Kaag complains about individual MPs after a debate in Parliament. Ministerial and party officials complained that Kaag wasn't wearing a seatbelt in any of the scenes filmed in her chauffeured car, pointing out that nobody wanted the documentary to turn into, quote, seatbelt gate. Um, the <laughs> filmmaker couldn't cut all the scar scenes but bizarrely they did offer to use CGI to add the seatbelts in the scenes and that was the best <laughs> part of this whole saga. but then in the end they didn't do it because actually it was technically impossible it turned out yeah 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 and also not something that documentary makers should do but that's not the reason they didn't do it they didn't do it because they couldn't they couldn't manage it technically yeah <laughs> And other quotes by Kaag were also removed or changed at the request of the party. Ministerial officials were asked for advice by the filmmakers which themes or scenes uh, could best be shown in the documentary. And Deze Sessor was also asked when they preferred the documentary to be broadcasted, which, shockingly, they wanted to be as close to the election as possible, mm. as the public broadcaster would allow it. So, yeah, um, I don't think the, the criticism uh, should be directed at Kaag or the mm. party, or the ministry, because no. after all, it is their job to, you know, spin an as positive uh, yeah. uh, uh, possible image of the minister. I think the, the the criticism should be directed at the VPRO and the filmmakers who, you know, as a journalist, it is their job to cut through the uh, the spin doctor's bullshit yeah. and uh, uh, ignore it if they feel like they, they don't want to do it. No, and, and totally. Uh, yeah, they, they just basically leaned over backwards. I mean, they didn't grant all the requests, in fairness to them, but a lot of them they did. And just I think yeah. the fact that Zester felt so entitled that they could make these... It was a micromanagement of it and the, 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 the incredible yeah. obsession with image management. And this is already a pretty positive, a pretty glowing... You know, Portrait of Kaag already. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, there's a school of thought that's particularly popular on Twitter that journalism should just be about standing on, on a street corner with a megaphone shouting at politicians they're liars 24 hours a day. I don't buy into that. I think that there is room for other, you know, other, other, <laughs> other nuances in journalism. But nevertheless, this went too far in the opposite direction. Yeah. The, the, and uh, it was a fairly hagiographic uh, documentary. It was a, I, I thought it was fairly good when I watched it. I mean, I didn't expect it to be, you know, holding up uh, Dayson Zestra's policy program under the spotlight. It was meant to be a portrait of Sifu Kaag. And what yeah. was shown, I think, was fairly accurate, but also fairly positive. And you could see that she'd had a lot of personal input. But the fact they felt that it didn't go far enough, and they were talking about, we want to see her ideas presented more strongly in the documentary. Yeah. It was just amazing. Which the documentary wasn't about initially. They wanted yeah. to turn it into a piece of Chinese state propaganda, yeah. basically. Yeah, the, the, the filmmakers and also the Deza Sester people, they almost regarded this as a sort of co-production between the, the Deza yeah. Sester party and the VPRO. And yeah, yeah it, it just gave a fascinating insight. And I love the, the little side note, indeed, in one of these lists. They, they, have, they sent this endless list of improvements. And then at the end, oh yeah, we also thought that the documentary is not substantial enough and uh, they mm -hmm. don't talk about her ideals. And almost as if that was uh, an afterthought of the, of the Deza Sester PR people. <laughs> 
yeah. that oh yeah politics is also about ideas and about yeah about policies yeah and not just about whether whether or not you have champagne glasses at a diplomatic reception so what were the reactions Paul? yeah both the Deze Sesestig and the ministry said in their response that they were given the opportunity to see the documentary and check for factual errors they do not deny they made commendations but emphasized that it was VPRO who had the final say pointing out that indeed the scene without the safety belt was for example included in the film after all the mm. uh, VPRO uh, keeps insisting the documentary was made critically and independently and denies the allegations Deze Sesestig was given far-reaching influence VPRO doesn't deny the party uh, was consulted during the filming which they say isn't unusual with such a long project but the uh, uh, broadcaster categorically denies that the date of airing was discussed with Deze Sesestig they say it was a decision made between the VPRO and the TV channel the broadcaster announced uh, it will start an inquiry nonetheless and the ombudsman I think has also uh, said he will look into it as well yeah but other um, for example Martin Bosma of, of the PVV was always very critical of the documentary and he also pointed out that for example the the chair of the VPRO is a Deze Sester member mm. and also the person in charge of, of broadcasting on, on NPO2 the, the channel which broadcasted it is also a Deze Sester member so he yeah. he immediately starts to see this uh, Deze Sester conspiracy in the Dutch media Deze Sester is under the beds yeah and yeah. I love the fact that uh, <laughs> Martin Bosma gave an interview to the aspiring broadcaster Ongehoord Nederland uh, yeah. about his complaints uh, about the uh, you know the Deze Sester uh, Kaag documentary and I love the screenshot of the webpage of Ongehoord Nederland which uh, you know you saw in one of the boxes Martin Bosma complaining about Deze Sester having a grip on media and then all the other items were PVV politicians giving interview to this broadcaster so mm. yeah it's um, it was a little bit of irony there there's a nice kind of example of the Streisand effect here because um, at the yeah. time the broadcast the documentary was broadcast um, that almost nobody picked up on the seatbelt gate thing at all oh. um, and the fact that I think a couple of uh, right wing blogs uh, mentioned the fact she wasn't wearing a seatbelt Car of course immediately they sensed this could be an issue so she gave a donation to Fyler uh, in Nederland the, the road safety lobby group um, but the, the, it all fizzled out and then of course now that this has all come out and these these emails have been published suddenly it's all become seatbelt gate so that's now become you know the abiding image of the, of the documentary yeah this this obsession with uh, image uh, really uh, yeah came back to them it was really a, a PR boomerang that uh, that came back into their face yeah. and we finally know where the PR in VPRO stands for indeed that's true I'd say as well just, for, just as a final point I think it's good this kind of lifts the lid on the kind of the very cozy relationships on the, you have between political journalists and the parties and the way that yeah. I think a lot of international journalists uh, are always surprised that uh, it's a standard practice in uh, in the Dutch media that uh, once you do an interview that your draft is checked over by the interviewee. There seems to be a lot of slippage here where this goes beyond that. The, the convention is that you, that you let them check it to correct any factual inaccuracies, which I think is fair. I think some people are against letting him see the copy at all in advance, but I think sometimes it's, it's actually good to, if you've made a serious factual error, I'd rather know about it before I put the copy online than afterwards. But on the other hand, it, it, it slipped too far, and the politicians now expect to have uh, quotes changed. I don't do a huge number of political interviews, but I do. Usually when it comes back, they say it's clean, or they make a few very small factual changes. Occasionally a politician will ask to change a quote, and that's my red line, really. But I, I understand yeah. that some Dutch journalists are happy to change quotes. They're even happy to go the other way and say sometimes they'll say to the politician, oh, can we just uh, tweak this quote a little bit because we think it sounds better if you said this rather than that. So no, yeah. you should go with the quotes you're given. I think that's very bad yeah. ethics as well. So I think it's good that we've got a bit of a conversation about you know what the limits should be when you allow people to fact check your interviews 
It's that time again when we raise a photoshopped champagne glass and say thank you to the lovely patrons who make this podcast possible. Your donations help us to help you keep up to date with what's going on in Dutch life, politics and sport. And as a mark of our gratitude, we'll give you a shout out on the next episode and attempt to answer your questions. This week, we welcome one new patron, Janice Perry. So thank you very much indeed, Janice, for your support. Thank you. And to everybody else who sponsors us uh, on this podcast. If you'd like to become a podcast patron, go to patreon.com slash p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash dutchnewsnl. Frank de Boer stepped down as national men's football team coach this week after the Euro 2020 campaign ended in a 2-0 defeat to the Czech Republic. The ambition of reaching the quarterfinals was written into de Boer's contract, but it collapsed in the 55th minute of the second round match when Matthijs de Ligt handled the ball as he tussled with Patrick Schick. So it was humiliation for de Ligt and delight for Schick as he and Thomas Holisch punctured the ragged Dutch defence and earned the Czechs a quarterfinal tie with Denmark. The Canfei Bay said it was de Boer's decision to quit, while the manager said the pressure of the job had created an unhealthy situation. Orania will now help to appoint a successor before the World Cup qualifying resumes in Norway on September the 1st. So, uh, what names have been put forward for the next Bonds coach? Yeah, a whole lot of names, none of which really stand out. Um, Erik ten Hag, the coach of Ajax, has been mentioned. Uh, Philippe Cocu, who was quite impressive uh, as PSV coach, but he's since... Not done so well, and uh, was uh, recently part of company with Derby County because they were bottom of the um, yeah the English Championship, which is the second division. Giovanni van Bronckhorst, Clarence Seedorf, and uh, even Louis van Gaal have been mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louis van Gaal will never go away. And surely Dick Advocaat is also mentioned, or not? So somebody's just throwing his name in just out of force of habit, I think. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Louis yeah, van Gaal and Dick Advocaat, I think, are both uh, going determined to enjoy their retirement. It is interesting, though, that um, it never never seems to 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 uh, come into someone's mind to appoint a uh, a an international or a foreign um, bonds coach, right? No, it's always that- Dutch person in the Netherlands. And uh, still there's uh, really good news uh, elsewhere, right? Yes, you, for- is. you forced me to, to, to say this pun. Uh, I should say, to, to clear your good name, I wrote that into the script and you yeah. read it out. Yes, that was not your <laughs> pun. But there has been very good news on four wheels and two wheels this week. Uh, first, Max Verstappen. Uh, he won the Styrian Grand Prix and uh, he didn't just win it, he uh, he strolled to victory, really. Yeah. I mean, he was on yep. pole position and he stayed on the track for the first lap yep. um, and he just uh, pulled away. And yep. now he's 18 points clear of Lewis Hamilton in the, cham- in the Drivers' Championship. Uh, that looks like it's a two-horse race after nine races. And the next race is going to be in Austria as well at the Red Bull Ring, which is uh, Red Bull's home circuit. So, yeah, lots of uh, home advantage for Max. Um, what, wasn't it the same? This, isn't it the same circuit? It is or the same is circuit. Yeah. yeah, No, it's the same circuit. Yeah. yeah. So they have two races in a row because they had to move the Turkish Grand Prix because of uh, coronavirus concerns. So they they just put on an extra race in Austria. But Formula One bosses weren't impressed with this post-race celebration uh, as Verstappen slowed down and burned up his tyres. And uh, race director Michael Massey said it was a safety risk and it wouldn't be tolerated in the future. No, yeah, because there were still uh, other drivers uh, passing him with uh, over 300 kilometers an hour. So, yeah, if you you stand stationary or nearly stationary on a track, that is just very dangerous indeed. It is. Yeah, it's, an, it's literally an accident waiting to happen. So they weren't yeah. very happy with that. And then there is a rule in Formula One that says that any post-race celebration should not put other drivers in danger. So yeah, he, he risked forfeiting the race by doing that. And, uh, yeah. If he does it again, I think he probably will. It is the Formula One equivalent of uh, pulling out off your, your, your jersey after a goal, right? It's, uh, I think it's slightly more dangerous than pulling off your jersey after a goal. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> that's right. 
Yeah, you have a point there. And also on Sunday, Mathieu van der Poel took the yellow jersey in the uh, Tour de France, and he managed to hang on to it on Wednesday in quite a dramatic time trial. Did you watch this, Paul? Uh, I watched his uh, first win, but the, uh, the time trial I didn't. But uh, I, I heard from a lot of people on, on Twitter who say that he's not a time uh, cyclist at no, all. No, he's not. Yeah. Uh, and uh, basically, he just stepped on his bike and beat everyone. Yeah, he was expected to lose the yellow jersey, basically. But um, last year's tour winner, Tadej Pogacar, um, he ran a very good time trial and everyone thought that he would take over the yellow jersey. But, but Van der Poel managed to keep within 30 seconds and that meant he held on to the yellow jersey by eight seconds. But uh, the climbing stages begin today, which is Friday. So by the time you hear this, he will probably have lost it again. Yeah, but everyone expected that with the time trial as well. So yeah. he probably turned out to be a very, very, very well uh, uh, mountain climber on his bike uh, uh, yeah. as well. Yeah, and his first uh, yellow jersey win was also an emotional one because his grandfather uh, was uh, notoriously the um, the everlasting second... Uh, Always the bridesmaid. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he, he, he did very well in the Tour de France that he participated in, but he never won the yellow jersey he was always on second place so right. uh, yeah this was uh, this was a nice uh, gesture and nice, nice family honor. moment yeah indeed yeah, yeah. can you guess uh, which country this new star of dutch sport was born in paul uh, I think he is a fellow countryman of uh, Max Verstappen, isn't he? Is. he? Yes, he's yeah. Belgian-born. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Well, luckily he d- he decided to step on a bike and not an F sixteen. <laughs> There will be no more two for the price of one crates of beer on sale in the Netherlands from this week. Thanks to a new alcohol law that came to effect on July 1st, shops and bars cannot discount alcoholic drinks by more than 25%. Supermarkets cannot sell hard liquor online and there are more sanctions to deter underage drinking. According to the health ministry, the rules are aimed at preventing alcohol use by young people and countering problematic alcohol use in the Netherlands. Promotions such as free larger bottle sizes or giveaways such as glasses are also banned, fines for breaking the new law can lead up to 5,500 euros. Some supermarkets have told Dutch media that there has been a run on beer in the run-up of the new law, uh, while organizations such as the VNG Association for Local Councils have welcomed the changes. The Trimbles Institute, which monitors the use and effects of addictive substances in the Netherlands, also welcomed the new law. Mm. Yeah, If you have been uh, to a supermarket in the previous weeks, then you will have noticed without a doubt that people were carrying supermarket trolleys uh, filled with beer crates uh, out of yeah it's just especially here in Delft I mean it's a student city so a lot of uh, students they don't really care which beer they drink so they, they just buy the cheapest ones and uh, yeah it's uh, it's been a um, fascinating sight uh, to see everyone yeah it's, uh, it's been an absolute scramble for, for cheap alcohol I, yeah I'm, I'm very sad they can't give away the free glasses anymore I've got a whole collection of uh, beer glasses that were given away in promotional packs I was also a real sucker for them that's a shame indeed yeah, yeah and uh, I believe a crate of beer typically costs 17 or 18 euros I believe yeah. something like that and uh, every week uh, a supermarket has a discount, of course. Uh, to, they, they sell... No rotation a, discounts for about 10 euros, isn't it? For around 10 euros, and every yeah. supermarket does it, and they rotate uh, their beer. So, uh, yeah, but uh, research showed that a lot of people just decide which supermarket they're going to based on their favorite beer, which yeah. happens to be on discount in, in the supermarket. And they always buy, because it's so cheap, more beer or more alcohol than they intended to. So the ban of, of these sort of enormous discounts uh, might be... Uh, um, 
effective on tackling uh, alcohol usage. But yeah, a lot of people are very unhappy with it. And uh, I, I also mm. saw that yesterday, I believe it was the youth organization of the VVD who built a beer crate castle at, on the plain <laughs> in The Hague uh, uh, out of protest of the new new law. Um, yeah. Right on time, right on yeah. time, uh, well, just on the day that it was came into effect. A lot of people didn't realize it was coming up until a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah, I think that's true. I think it crept up on people. And all of a sudden, of course, it's in the middle of a football tournament as well. Although the Dutch very obligingly <laughs> got themselves knocked out. Because otherwise, yeah. I think people would have been really stocking up. We would have orange riots in the streets, I think. Yeah. <laughs> the mayor of Amsterdam, Famke Halsema, has apologized on behalf of the city for its role in the slave trade. Halsema gave a speech on Katie Koti, the annual commemoration of the abolition of the slave trade on Thursday. It's time to embed the great injustice of colonial slavery into the identity of our city through broad and unconditional recognition, the mayor said. She stressed that she wasn't apologising on behalf of individual Dutch people, but in the name of the government that allowed slavery to happen, and profited from it. Last year, the city council voted in favour of issuing an apology, and the cabinet is under increasing pressure to follow suit. And for those who don't know, uh, what is Keti Koti? Keti Koti has been celebrated in the major Dutch cities on July the 1st every year since 2002. It means broken chains in the Surinamese language Stranatongo, and the ceremony marks a date in 1863 when slavery was formally abolished in the colony. However, the last slaves weren't freed until 1873 because it was a 10-year transition period and slave owners each received 300 guilders in compensation. Per slave. Per slave, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, the four largest city councils have called for Ketikoti to be made a public holiday and 51,000 people have signed a petition uh, backing that idea as well. Yeah, I support that idea as well. If there's yeah. any occasion that, that that needs celebration then then this is it i think yeah yeah absolutely it'd be kind of a dutch equivalent to martin luther king day yeah yeah yeah, yeah i guess yeah uh what other recommendations uh, have been made well the advisory body at Slavernijverleden said there should be a national commemoration attended by the king and they also proposed a national slavery museum and the country's slave trading history should be better taught in schools. Uh, it, is, it is mentioned in the school books, but uh, yeah, it doesn't have a very prominent role at the moment. Rotterdam and Utrecht have also published studies on their own links to slavery and The Hague has commissioned one too. But Mark Rutte said back in February the cabinet would not be apologising on behalf of the state. He argued that it could provoke a backlash and as a historian, he questioned the value of apologizing for something that happened 150 years ago. Uh, I believe in the Rijksmuseum, they now have a permanent exhibition on uh, on slavery, right? There is a very good exhibition on slavery yeah. at the moment in the Rijksmuseum, apparently. Yes, I haven't been to see it, but uh, everyone that I've spoken to or seen uh, mentioned on Twitter says it's very good and it uh, contains lots of artifacts from the slave past and you know, doesn't sugarcoat it at all. And it's very informative. So, yeah, I would... Well, I'd like to recommend it, but I haven't been, so I can't really. But hmm. uh, it, it, it's, it's said to be very good. Yeah. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes, and you can get in touch with us by email to podcast.dutchnews.nl. If you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters, I'm Gordon Derrick, and we'll be back next week.
Oh, I forgot to mention the CDA uh, in the polls. Oh, yeah, yeah, never mind. Next week. Next, Next week, week we'll do that. There's probably yeah. be another CDA disaster, so 